Um, So that's Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I'm going to just pray for us before we listen to the talk. Um, Father, thank you so much that your word is good and true. Please help us to have soft hearts to listen to what you're going to tell us through it this morning. Please help Toby as he um, preaches to preach your truth um, faithfully and clearly. Amen. Um, My name is Toby. I'm one of the pastors here today. Um, It's not on. It is now. There we go. Um, I'm one of the pastors here today, and you are so welcome. Um, I see faces I don't recognize. I see faces I've known for many years, and you're all welcome here as we build up towards Christmas. This Thursday, I was sat in a briefing with all the other members of staff in my school, and my head teacher said, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. He goes, the bad news is you're going to have to queue up and wait for a card. The good news is there's a 50-pound voucher inside it. Now, with recent economic pressures, a new boiler and a new car, this 50-pound voucher, my heart leapt. He had one caveat. He said, this is for those members of staff who are not on probation. I am in my first six months uh, at that job and assumed I was in probation, and frankly, I couldn't be bothered to line up and wait for the card. I was sat in my office, and my colleagues were, were, were um, chuffed with the number of venues that they could spend their money on their gift card, and they could see on my face I was dejected. And I said, well, I think I'm, I'm probably on probation. It's, 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 it's not for me. This card is not for me. And my colleague, didn't, he'd been listening harder, and he'd been, he was a bit more switched on than me. And he went away, took the letter, found one with my name on it, and slapped it down on my desk and said, there you go. It is for you. Sure enough, I opened it. There was... A, uh, a Christmas card designed by one of our children in our year seven, um, and it said, Dear Toby, thank you for your efforts. Here's your card. In fact, when I read the card closely, this is no word of a lie. It is possible to ham up stories for the sake of it, but this is totally true. On the front of the Christmas card, it said, The beauty of Christmas is not in the presence but in his presence. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. I got this on Thursday. I'm preaching on the very same verse on Sunday, and it is really quite humbling that a year seven student called Avnit can summarize in a more pithy, more um, punchy way the verses that I'm 
preaching on than my points were. These are my points, which is, we need to accept God's life-giving present and enjoy God's life-giving presence. Now, mine had two points. Hers had one, so that was humbling. But in fact, those aren't my points, to accept God's life-saving present and to enjoy life's God, uh, God's life-giving presence, because they are, in fact, God's points. And they come from the two names given to the baby who we have been looking at, who was born just over 2,000 years ago. The first name, Jesus. Please keep your Bibles open. Um, so we're on Matthew chapter 1, and you'll have heard it, so please do keep it open. So that first name is Jesus. And this first name, Jesus, comes from an angel talking to Joseph. Now we're told in verse 23, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Let me just give you a little bit of context to just show you how real this is. Now Joseph had been betrothed to Mary, you'll be familiar with this, but having read into it a bit, I just love how earthy and real this story is. Now, betrothal in those days is more, actually, it was more of a big deal than being engaged today. It was more like being married just without having um, had the party yet and without having consummated things. Now, Mary being pregnant was a major scandal. I mean, like, a huge scandal. And... um, You can only imagine that probably Joseph was taken aside by some of the village elders. Um, This isn't in the text, but it could have been what happened. Uh, And sort of in hushed tones explained that Mary was pregnant. Now, I think it's possible for people of our age to think that they were somehow naive back then and didn't know what this meant. And that somehow Joseph was just this gullible, star-struck lover who just accepted Mary. But no, he was furious. And yet he toned down his fury, he realised that were he to make a big deal out of this, this could cost Mary her life. What Jesus, what the, it says, what the text says in verse 20, if you have a look, is that, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, interesting thing I discovered was that that word, considered, so in verse 20, but after he'd considered, can be translated as considered, but it's actually got quite a lot of overtones of anger. So other people say you could translate it as stewed. So as Joseph stewed over this. Now, this is real life angst. This is Jesus coming into real people with real problems, And he's born into a family that's nearly finished before it even starts. It's nearly disintegrated. It takes the intervention of an angel to keep this marriage together. So if you read in verse 21, uh, it says here, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, people talk about babies being a gift, a gift or, in my terms, in my point, a present. Now, the thing with a present is you don't earn it, do you? It's not a wage. You've been given it. You've not done anything to earn this. Now, there's a bit of a dad disclaimer now. 
Um, I certainly didn't do much to earn my kids, right? I, I, they, they, they sort of turned up. I certainly hadn't passed any exams. I did not earn this right to be a parent. And the, this baby is a gift. Now, Jesus is a present because he will save his people from their sins. It's not earned. It's given. The whole story of the Bible here is a story of the salvation that only God alone can bring. And it's a present. He will save. It can't be earned. The Jews had a word for a person who was going to come and save, and that was Messiah. And they were looking hard for a Messiah. The religious elite knew what they were looking for, and they wanted this Messiah to come, uh, particularly the religious people. Um, But as Jesus grew up and revealed what he was all about, Jesus didn't fit the religious people's view of a Messiah. He did not line up. Jesus was an unwanted present. Now, what the religious wanted, what they thought they needed at that time in space, time, history, was they needed freedom from Rome. They needed to establish their own kind of exclusive Davidic kingdom, this kind of special place where they were special people. They wanted independence, national security. Now, whilst those things were specific to a time and a place then, isn't that much the same as today? It's no different to what we say. We say, I'm, I'd be quite interested in a saviour, provided I can decide what I need to be saved from. Now, Jesus attracted all the wrong sorts of people to his message. The people who knew they weren't good enough. Those who accepted God's life saving present. Now, in the horrified words of the religious people around, they said, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. It's a bit like saying a doctor, they, they, they heal sick people. This is, that, that's how ridiculous this is. Can you possibly believe that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners? That is what the Messiah came to do. The people who Jesus attracted knew that they were sinners. That was what united them. From prostitute to politicians, from fishermen to white-collar criminals. It was their biggest need that united them. Take, for example, when Jesus um, healed the paralytic. So Jesus was was, uh, teaching and a bunch of people came with with a guy who was paralyzed and they broke a hole in the roof and they let him down and everyone was expecting them for Jesus to do his you know his 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 classic um, healing thing where he was going to heal the guy and what's the first thing he said he says your sins are forgiven Jesus had been communicating to people that their biggest need wasn't in fact what they thought it was but it was that they stood as sinners now The biggest need that we have today is to be saved from our sins because sins separate us from our perfect God. Now, that's why we can celebrate this Christmas. 
This Christmas gift came to its full fruition, came fully good 33 years later on Good Friday at Calvary, where Jesus died in our place and saved us from our sins. That was when the curtain was torn in half in the temple that separated or symbolized the separation between God and man. It was dealt with then. It was done. So we can accept God's life-saving present. And what that enables us to do is to enjoy life's God, God's life-giving presence. Let's read verses 22 to 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. John Wesley, the uh, great founder of the Methodist Church, a Methodism who has influenced our country more than we could possibly imagine, in, in England anyway, um, his last words were, the best of all is God with us. Now, if we could only live with that on our heart today, I think there would be joy and there would be life that would spring from it in ways we can't even imagine. Now, this idea of God with us is the loftiest idea in all of literature. The creator of the universe became a man. Now, the Bible tells us this continually, directly, and implies throughout the Bible. This is not just a one-off, I'm picking a verse and just telling you uh, everything off this. Now, this is the first place we're introduced to to Jesus in the New Testament. Um, Matthew chapter 1. And here we're reminded of Isaiah chapter 7. You might see that there's a little um, sort of footnote telling us that this is what the scriptures said, that they will call him God with us. This is not the only place. John, at the very beginning of his gospel, starts with the word was God. That's talking about Jesus, was God. Peter, in his writing, said that God purchased the church with his own blood. So Matthew, John, and Peter all affirm what this Old Testament prophecy that it's referring to here is saying about Jesus Christ, that he is God with us. Now those guys, Matthew, Peter, and John, had all actually spent three years living with Jesus. And they all went on to either die or be imprisoned for holding to this idea that Jesus was God with us. Now, again, I think that sort of, well, you know, that was back then and people, you know, people are gullible. Actually, first century Jews were probably the least likely people to actually ascribe to the idea that God could be with man. If you look at the other religions around them, you had the Greeks who had, and the Romans who had their pantheon of different gods. You had, you've got Eastern religions that have been around for thousands of years who also believe that there are multiple um, manifestations of deity that people can somehow be sort of avatars, sort of have God sort of in them. But that's not the only thing that I think makes their profession plausible, because they obviously, they believed in Jehovah, um, one God. But 
if I was trying to convince people that I was divine, that I was um, somehow, you know, God with us, which I'm not, by the way, um, I wouldn't start with people I've lived with. I wouldn't start with my family, because they know that I am not divine. I would not start looking back. I wince when I look back at when I was a housemate to people at different times. We've all got those stories. That's not where I'd start. And yet somehow Jesus' moral glory matched up to his claim to be God with us. Isn't that incredible? Matthew, John, and Peter could genuinely risk their lives on the truth that Jesus was God with us because they knew him. They knew him. They'd spent time with him. They'd eaten with him. They'd done life with him. And there is a difference between experiencing and knowing. So the general experience of God in the Old Testament was frankly terrifying. Abraham experiences the presence of God as a burning furnace, smoking furnace moving between things that have been sacrificed. Job experiences the presence of God as like a whirlwind, like a tornado. We've, only, we've seen the, the damage that the tornado has done in Kentucky um, just this last few days. Moses has uh, a presence, experience of God's presence as a pillar of fire, like a nuclear fallout, like, like a nuclear bomb going off. These experiences of God are ones of kind of consuming power, of God at some distance, because we're separated from him because of sin. Now, it's one thing to experience something, to experience God's existence, and another thing to know him. For example, I think you can experience something of God's awe when you see a mountain range or you look at nature. You can experience things. Some of the greatest experiences I know some people talk about is going to a concert, going to a gig. And this is an analogy. So there's a, the story goes that there was this uh, lady, she was a good singer, uh, and she sort of built her whole career on singing like this singer. Let's say that singer's Adele, so she sort of does like Adele performances. And she's been to all the concerts, she knows everything about Adele. But at any opportunity that she gets to actually go after the concert to meet Adele, she dares not go. As much as she'd built her life around this person, she wouldn't go and meet Adele. Because she feared that perhaps she might be asked to sing and be... and, and, and uh, give some sort of account of why she's uh, chosen to, 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 to follow and, and to be like Adele. And she never did. She never went and met Adele. Therefore, she never knew Adele. She experienced something, but she never knew. Now, Martin Luther was, uh, you know, quite an influential character. Um, he had been a monk uh, this is 500 years ago. Um, he'd been at church all the time. He'd confessed his sins twice a day. He, he could tell you a great deal about Christianity. And he felt the weight of this religious observance. He'd experienced something of what it was to, to, to be around God. But actually, it wasn't until he was studying Romans... And he discovered that he, by, by asking for forgiveness, can stand fully forgiven before God and in complete and utter, unseparated communion with God, that he actually spoke that he felt as if he was ushered into paradise itself. 
that he knew the presence of God. He knew God. Now, how did God actually appear here in the scriptures as Emmanuel? Well, we, we see in the Old Testament that there was separation, big time separation between God and man. Um, Johnny spoke about this last week. It's worth a, worth a listen if you didn't get a chance. But he appears here as a baby. I don't know if you've ever held a baby, but there's a sense to which they're 100% available to you. There's 100% vulnerability there. They're 100% with you. <laughs> they're not distracted by something else. They're, they're, they're there. They're, the baby is there. They are available. So here, with Emmanuel, with God with us, stepping down into real life, time and space, the divide between God and man has been removed for those who are the us. Now, what do I mean by for those who are the us? You can see God with us. But who, are, who is this us? The use of us is quite similar to the use of his people in verse 21. So who are his people? Us. The same thing. If you've had your sins forgiven, i.e., if you've actually approached God and said, look, I'm sorry, I can see that you've made a way for me to, to approach you because of what Jesus has done, then your sins are forgiven. That means you have access to the presence of God. There is no greater thing. How close are you? Well, you couldn't be any closer. What's keeping you from him? Because I am guarantee that many of us here feel far from God, even if that is our story. What's keeping us from him? What's stopping you from talking to your dad in heaven in prayer? Listening to what he has to say in his word and in your life. It's not limited. But those are key ways by just talking to your dad in heaven, by listening to what he has to say in his word? Is it a habit that makes you feel like you couldn't even draw close? Because if so, there's power for that to be got rid of. Is it a lack of time that's stopping you? I know that's been a big one for me in the past. Well, actually, what, when I look at that in myself and I say, well, I haven't got enough time to spend time with, time with God today, um, what I'm actually saying is it will cost me It'll cost me something. Maybe I, I get a little bit less of this or I don't get as much of this or whatever. There's a cost to making time to spend with God. But I'll tell you what, it's not nearly as much as the cost of that life-saving, life-giving present, which gives us God's presence. The time with your God is what you are made for. And it's the greatest privilege in the entire universe. So, I, I just humbly but firmly ask you, accept God's life-saving present of this Jesus that was born, our saviour. But then, also, take hold of it. Enjoy God's life-giving presence that never leaves. So I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to pray over those two things. Now, maybe for you, um, that's not been something which is true for you. 
um, perhaps you've not accepted um, that present. And if, if you'd like to, I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can echo that in your heart, and that could be true for you this morning. And my goodness, there'd be celebrations in heaven. Or um, if that is something that you is real for you, then my goodness, you can celebrate. You can enjoy God's life-giving presence this Christmas. He's there. Whatever the stress is, whatever the relational angst, whatever the turmoil that's coming your way this Christmas, whatever it is, he is present, and you can experience and enjoy and know your Father God. Okay? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you that we bring nothing to the table. We thank you, Father, that all we can do is just ask that Jesus is who he says he is, that he will save us if we ask for forgiveness, and we ask for that now. Father, we pray for those of us here who feel far from God, who feel distant. Please help renew our time with you. Revitalize us with your presence, because it's not, you've not gone away. It's, it's us who often steps away. Holy Spirit, please empower us to, whether it be to make our first step in terms of asking forgiveness, or whether it be our thousand and first time of asking for forgiveness and knowing that you are there. I pray that you'd make that real this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.